word of the Lord from Luke chapter 1, verses 72 through 75. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. The word of God for the people of God. To take a copy of the scriptures, if you have one with you, either on your device or a physical copy, and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. This will be our text this morning. Now, I'm a reader. You may have picked that up through various sermons as I give book recommendations. I love to read, and I love a good story, but I hate losing my place in a good story. Usually this happens when I'm reading, oh, maybe a volume of the collected short stories of Louis L'Amour. Don't judge. I love Louis L'Amour. Each chapter in his collected short stories is a new story, and I'm usually reading in his books on the go, putting the book down, taking care of something, picking it back up a few moments or a few hours or days later. So I'm often putting it down and picking it back up again. So sometimes I'll fold down a corner of the page so that I don't lose my place in the book, but that means if I'm constantly putting it down and picking it back up, after a while, just about every corner of every page has been bent, and so I've still lost my place. Losing your place in a good story can be disorienting, confusing, especially when you read the same paragraph three or four times, or you've skipped a page or two in the story. But losing our place in the story is a common human experience. You see, God himself is in the process of writing a story. And as humans, we have the tendency to lose our place in this story that God is writing. And this can happen to any of us. Just before the text that Devin read for us this morning, we're introduced to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest Zechariah would be the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And even Zechariah lost his place in the story that God was writing. He forgot that as he served in the temple, he was serving an absolutely sovereign and powerful God, capable of doing whatever was necessary to bring about his purposes. And when God told him something, something that seemed unbelievable, namely that he and his wife were beyond the age to bear children, that they would have a son, he didn't believe God. He forgot his place in God's story. I wonder if in the midst of the year-end chaos that is December in American culture, and in the midst of life in a beautiful and broken city like Chattanooga, I wonder if you find yourself having missed or lost your place in God's story. Maybe as a student, you're struggling with relational challenges or focused 
so focused on your grades that you have forgotten that you're connected to God's purposes each and every day. Or maybe you're struggling with being single and you're just tired of it. Or maybe as an employee, the long hours and the looming deadlines have you interacting with your coworkers as objects, objects to simply get a task done, not as human beings that have been made in the image of God, living in a world that God has created. Maybe illness has you disoriented. Maybe marital stress has you fumbling. Maybe the everyday trials of life has just nudged your attention, your gaze ever so slightly then, so that rather than seeing the story clearly, you've lost your place and you feel like you're just flipping pages. As we open our Bibles to Luke 1 again, we discover that the Christmas story helps us find our place in God's story. The Christmas story helps us find our place in God's story. And it helps us find our place in God's story by reminding us of three realities. First, it reminds us of what God has done. Second, it reminds us of what God is doing. And third, it reminds us of what God will do. So first, it reminds us of what God has done. Look down at Luke chapter 1 and verse 67, and as we make our way through this text, we have come to another original sound of the season, if you will. Zechariah is the next character in Luke's account who is going to lift his voice in praise to God because God is on the move. It reminds me of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the wicked white witch has enslaved all of Narnia, and she's brought about a never-ending winter. Do you remember this portion of the story? A winter where it's always winter, but never Christmas. And at one point in the story, Narnia begins to thaw. And as the four children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are making their way through the woods, they are startled by Father Christmas. And Father Christmas says, I've come at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but I've gotten at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. In our text, Zechariah understands that the birth of his son, a miracle because of Zechariah's and Elizabeth's age, his son's birth is a clear sign that God is on the move. It will never again be always winter and never Christmas. So what exactly was God up to? And as we look back on this event in history, what has God done? Well, first, in Jesus, God came to relieve his people. God came to relieve his people. Look at verse 68. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has come to help. Some translations read that God has visited his people. That word visited means to make an appearance, yes, but to help. It carries the nuance of assistance and concern. 
After 400 years of silence between the book of Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew, Luke records that God is speaking. He's speaking to Elizabeth. He's speaking to Zechariah. He's speaking to Mary. Why? Because the Messiah is about to come. God is coming to relieve his people. And if we remember the pattern of the book of Exodus, or the pattern of redemption in the Bible, rather, our minds ought to go back to the book of Exodus. After 400 years of bondage to Egypt, the Israelites are groaning in slavery, and we read this in Exodus chapter 2. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. If we allow ourselves just two minutes of contemplation in just about any public space that we enter into, it is clear that mankind needs relief. Andrew Peterson asks us appropriately in one of his songs, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? And if we're being honest, we have all felt the broken world and the deep shadows this year in tangible ways. And at Christmas, we are reminded that God himself entered a broken world to relieve his people from their brokenness and eventually to restore that brokenness altogether. In Jesus, God came to give meaning to life, to give hope to suffering, to give joy in the fight, to give life instead of death, to give flourishing instead of floundering. Because in Jesus, God came to relieve his people. But number two, in Jesus, God came to redeem his people. We don't often talk about redeeming something in our culture. But we do hear about redemption stories a lot, don't we? Typically, in the sporting world, that means after some epic failure or tragic loss or collapse, an individual or a team mounts a stunning comeback. But the original redemption story is much more stunning, is a much grander reversal. You see, in ancient Israel, to redeem something that word came from the grocery store. It was used to describe buying something for a price. And then it grew from that to mean liberating others from an oppressive situation. Zechariah is saying that God has liberated his people from an oppressive situation, much like he did the Israelites so many years ago from the nation of, Israel, of Egypt. And in the person of Jesus, God is at work to buy his people out of the slavery of idol worship, out of the bondage of fear and self-will and sin and death. And God is in the business of liberation. In Jesus, God came to relieve and redeem his people. Number three, in Jesus, God came to rescue his people. Look at verse 69. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Now he describes God raising up a horn of salvation. A horn describes the might and power of something. Some of the most impressive powerful and beautiful of God's creatures on our planet have horns or antlers or tusks. Moose, rhinoceros, longhorn cattle, binghorn sheep, elephants, reindeer, even if they're eight tiny ones. The horns, the antlers, the tusks are what these animals use to attack or defend. And Zechariah is using a cultural symbol to say God has fulfilled his promise by raising up a mighty Savior. One, is so, one who is so powerful that he can both defend and conquer their enemies. He can defend his people and conquer their enemies. God in Christ raids behind the lines of his enemies to rescue his people. And let's be honest, mankind is longing to be rescued. And if you just need proof of that, just follow the every four-year presidential election cycle. Out of either fear or control or both, each side paints the other side as the absolute enemy of American civilization and democracy. And each puts forward a champion that is often all but worshipped as the Messiah. And if we will but elect this individual, that person and his or her followers will triumph over every real or perceived enemy. But let me ask you a question. Where does this universal instinct that we have both seen and unseen enemies, and that we need a Savior, where does that instinct come from? It doesn't come from American politics. It doesn't come from a democracy. It doesn't come from governmental structures. It comes from the nature of reality. Because mankind does actually have enemies. The real enemy is not the other political party, regardless of what the attack ads might say. The the enemies that mankind are facing is much more deadly. Our enemies or our any being or anything that would take what is rightfully ours, and friend, Jesus is a mighty Savior who has come to rescue us From our enemies. He's come to rescue you from the lies of Satan. He's come to rescue you from the fear of death. He's come to rescue you from the fear of irrelevance. He's come to rescue you from shame. He's come to rescue you from pointless suffering. He's come to rescue you from endless pain. He's come to rescue you from doubt having the final say. He's come to rescue you from your own sin and brokenness. Because in Jesus, God came to rescue his people from their enemies. 
the Christmas story helps us find our place in God's story by reminding us of what God has done. Second, it reminds us of what God is doing right now. As we move through Zechariah's song, we can't help but notice that he's driving from what God has done to what God is doing now. And in light of what God has done, fulfilling the oath that he made to Abraham by relieving and rescuing and redeeming, Zechariah tells us that that oath of God means something for us today, right now, in the present. So look at verse 73. This oath grants that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, may serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him as long as we live. So God's oath to Abraham that he has fulfilled in Jesus and is fulfilling in Jesus grants that we might serve God. Now remember, Zechariah was a priest. Serving God was his calling. It's what he did, serving him in the temple of God. And this idea of service in the New Testament is built off of the Old Testament concept of temple service. Christians today have been freed from slavery and freed to service. Now for some sitting here, that may sound like an out of the frying pan, into the fire sort of statement. But service to God is not like slavery to a despot. It is service before him, Zechariah says. Service in his presence. It is service, life before the face of God, before the life-giving presence of God in whose presence, the Bible tells us, there is fullness of joy. And notice how this service is described. God is rescuing us to fearless service, Zechariah says. We've been granted to serve him without fear. Now, if we were still enemies of God, any service to God would be motivated by fear, hoping to earn his favor or avoid his wrath. But because of what God has done, we are free to render him service in our homes and workplaces, motivated by love and no longer fear. Love for him and love for others because perfect love casts out fear, as John would write later in 1 John. Perfect love casts out fear of others, fear of the world, and fear of God himself. Perfect love has forever changed our relationship to God and our motivation for service. Number two, God is rescuing us to devoted service. Zechariah says that this is a service in holiness. Holiness here describes a proper attitude towards God that's getting worked out in our actions. It's not merely behavioral, but it certainly includes behavior. And the Christian recognizes that God deserves our love, our worship, our respect, our devotion because of what God has done. And God is actively freeing us to devote ourselves to Him in everything we do so that everything 
becomes worship. Something like parenting becomes praise. Drudgery becomes delight. So that everything we do, anything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. But Zechariah says also that God is rescuing us to righteous service. A righteousness that has at its heart the two commandments, the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love others. Serving God in this modern world isn't rocket science. You don't need a theology degree. You don't need to be on staff at a church. You don't need the ability to teach or preach. You simply need a heart of love, a heart overflowing with love towards God for the work that He's done, and a heart of love towards us, towards others that's willing to express service towards God in service towards others. And let's just name that this is something we can't work up within ourselves. This is something God has to do. God has to infuse within our cold, dark, dead hearts His own love. And then He'll work that love out in love for Him and love to others. Number four, God is rescuing us to continuous service. Zechariah says, for as long as we live. It's been said that we often overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what can be done in 20 years. When I was in my early 20s, which is actually longer ago than it looks, I had these grand visions and dreams of what it would look like to serve God. Maybe you right now have dreams of the degrees you want, the titles you hope to attain, the promotions you're working for, the goals you want to reach. Or maybe you're at the stage looking back on what you thought you would have accomplished to this point and you haven't. And this verse brings us great comfort. God wants and deserves our service today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. We get to serve Him our whole life long. So friends, let's not be discouraged by the rough day or the rough week or the rough three years. We repent of sin. We cling to Christ by faith and we joyfully embrace our position in Him and we mimic Him as our example of service because we get to serve Him our whole life long. Because Jesus Christ has come, He Himself has rescued, relieved, and redeemed us. And Jesus Himself did that through His fearless, devoted, righteous, and continuous service to God. And now God enables us by His Spirit to respond appropriately to such grace. So we find our place in the story of God by serving, by serving God fearlessly, devotedly, righteously, and continuously. 
the events surrounding the birth of Jesus and the first Christmas help us find our place in God's story by reminding us first what God has done, second, what God is doing, and third, it reminds us of what God will do. What does God purpose to do as a continuation of what he has done and is doing? Well, Zechariah tells us, look at verse 76. And you, child, here he's referencing his son, John the Baptist, just recently born. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's tender mercy, the dawn will break upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. One of the joys of being in a life group and doing life one-on-one and couple-to-couple and individual-to-individual is watching parents interact with their children. And it fills my heart up to watch little hearts in deep distress, carried by little feet running across the room into the arms of mom or dad. Why? Because that child, although he or she could never articulate it, they know what it is to experience tender mercy from a parent. And Christian, so do you. God's tender mercy has broken over us like a tsunami. He's purposed to continue to give us light in Jesus Christ. He has purposed to guide our feet into the way of peace. And what God has purposed to do, God will do. But why? Can we actually count on God to do what God has said He will do? Well, Zechariah tells us why. Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 72. God has done these things to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our ancestor Abraham. God does what He does because He's merciful. And God does what He does because God always keeps his promises. So how will this story end? This grand story that God is writing? Well, it will end with peace. Because the incredible good news of the gospel is that God is both saving sinners and restoring his creation. Peace. Shalom. Holistic well-being. Men and women at peace with creation. Men and women at peace with one another. Men and women at peace with God. Shalom. Peace. That is what God has purposed to do. And that is what God will do. So as the Christmas story helps us find and keep our place in God's story... What does that mean for us as a church family? 
Well, first, it means that we have real hope for change because God is still writing the story. You and I are works in progress. We're not completed masterpieces. God knows that. God is not done with our stories. So, Christian, don't give up hope. Yes, we are a wreck, but God's not done. Second, we have a clear purpose as God is writing the story. You may have dreams and desires and goals for the year ahead or the decade ahead. Have you submitted those desires to the God who in fulfilling his oath to Abraham has granted you the joy of fearless, devoted, righteous, continuous service? So consider that promotion or that degree or that job transition, that move in light of what God is doing right now in the world today in your life. Third, if you're a parent, you have the joy to help your child find their place in God's story. Even in his song, Zechariah places his son John in the greater story that God is writing. He says, and you, John, will be a forerunner to this Messiah. And parents, in a similar way, you have an opportunity to parent your child into the grand story of God, teaching them consistently that the story, that life, is not about them. We aren't at the center. Regardless of what your culture wants you to believe and wants your child to believe, we aren't at the center. God is at the center, and the story is all about what God has done, is doing, and will do. And we have the joy of living in the midst of that story and helping others to find their place in that story. And fourth, we have a stable vantage point from which to view our lives. Every moment, year, and decade is meaningful because God is still writing the story. So yes, it matters what you did yesterday and what you do today. And it will matter what you do tomorrow. But yesterday, today, and tomorrow are not the end of the story. Mistakes and failures and weaknesses and sins aren't the end of the story. And the joy that you experience today or tomorrow or next week, that's but an aroma of a coming feast of joy that will never end. A feast of joy that if you and I could but catch a glimpse of right now, it would forever alter our existence. No conversation, no task, no text would ever be the same. Because God is the author. My life and your life is both meaningful in the story and yet not the ultimate meaning of the story. And this provides us with stability. Maybe you've heard Andrew Peterson's song, After the Last Tear. It goes like this. After the last tear falls, 
after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, there is love. After the last disgrace, after the last lie to save some face, after the last brutal jab from a poison tongue, after the last dirty politician, after the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, there is love. Because after the last plan fails, after the last siren wails, after the last young husband sails off to join the war, after the last this marriage is over, after the last young girl's innocence is stolen, after the last years of silence that won't let a heart open, there is love. And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. We'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all, and we'll look back on these tears as old tales. Friends, the story of your life is part of a much larger story than you can possibly imagine. And Christmas is a time when we get to find and keep our place in this grand story that the sovereign, gracious, kind, benevolent God is writing. Let's pray together. Father, we confess again that your Son, Jesus Christ, has come, and he is coming again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we are grateful that you have not left us without hope in this world. But because of the gift of your Son, who did not stay a babe in a manger, but who grew up, lived a life of perfect, wholehearted service to you, obeying you in every way we have failed, loving you in every way, died on a cross so that he might bear the full weight of our failures and our sin and was resurrected from the grave so that we might be justified by his life. Father, because of this gift, you have placed us into the grand story that you are writing. Father, there are some here this morning who are overwhelmed by the realities of life. I pray in these moments you would meet them by your spirit, that you would wrap them up in your arms of love, that you would remind them that you are a good and gracious Father. 
And Father, it is quite possible that there are many here who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have not taken his life and death and resurrection as their own, who are still trying to write their own story or make sense of life on their own. God, would you bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Would your Holy Spirit please draw them to yourself? Cause them to see that while you are a just judge, you long to be their loving Father. And Father, we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. And now let's...